So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 today. So if you guys would just turn to Philippians chapter 2. Um, so as I left, had left, transitioned out of Poplar Spring and started going to Faith Baptist, one of the first things I did was kind of got involved in this college group there. I, I, there was a college group of about 30, 30 or 40 people, pretty sizable, and so I had gone and started attending that college group. I wanted to serve in that group. And for the first few weeks, it was, it was, it was great. We, were, we had, like I said, about 30 or 40 people. We were going out to different meals, going out to Sonic. We were studying the Bible together. We were going on trips and doing all sorts of awesome things. I mean, it was, it was a, a great time. And then slowly, over the next few weeks and months, things started to get slower and slower with less and less people starting to come. It was kind of like when you shut the sink off and the water just runs out slowly at the end. It's like the last of the group's water had run out. And at, at, at the end of those few weeks, we had we would gone from 30 to 40 college students to 7 to 10 on, on a good day in Sunday school. My dream of that perfect group of, of college students had, had ran out, and now I was just looked back on what happened. I would get up to teach on, on Sunday mornings in Sunday school, and I would look out, and not that I didn't love those people, I did, but part of my heart just goes, what happened? And how does a group of, of 30 or 40 uh, college students seemingly so tight-knit, how did they just dissolve like that in the matter of weeks? I remember saying uh, to the class that if, if God's Spirit is what unifies us, if God's Spirit is what keeps us together, then what do you guys think happened to our class? It was a sobering question for all of us, and we, kind of, we came to the conclusion that we didn't have true biblical unity. We had unity around activities that we would do, around cool people who would attract other people into the group, but we didn't have true Christ-centered biblical unity. And many of those in the group were concerned about what we were doing and not why we were doing it. And so a few weeks passed, we're going through Sunday school, and, and we, we have an opportunity to go to Wilmington to do some mission work out there. Um, this was some heavy mission work. Um, it was not for the faint of heart. It was drywalling. Um, so if any of you have ever drywalled, you know this is not something for the faint of heart, and you have to be spiritually ready for this. It is sanctifying. And, uh, and so, so it was the best thing. That drywalling trip was the best thing that could have ever happened to that Sunday school class. It, I realized that there was people there that I didn't even know. I'd stood up in front of for months and, and, and taught, and I didn't even know who they were. But the importance of those few days drywalling was not in what we were doing, but why we were doing it. We were serving Christ while we were drywalling. We were serving each other while we were drywalling. When we were drywalling, we were focused on and around the, the one thing that was important, which was the gospel. We were there to serve and rebuild homes, but with the intention of sharing the gospel with people. We were... We were serving one another and not expected to be serving back. Now, I do feel bad for whoever had to mud the place because we were serving very hard, but we were, those cuts weren't straight. We were not doing very well. But we were working together as under the Lord, as best as you could your first time drywalling. And I believe that what we found in those, those few days in Wilmington is what Paul is pointing us to today in Philippians chapter 2. And I, I want to show you today that, that what we found that day in Wilmington and what I see in Philippians 2. I want to show us today, I want to show us Christ-centered unity out of Philippians 2. And so my aim today, I want to just show you three, three points. I want to show you our encouragement. 
I want to show you our exhortation, and I want to show you our example. And then hopefully by God's power, I just want to call us to respond however he sees fit. And so we look at our encouragement. We're just going to read through. So look at verse 1. If you have your Bibles open, Philippians 2, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection in sympathy. In verse 1, Paul gives us these four if statements. Uh, if there's any encouragement in Christ, comfort from love. And now it's, it's important to know that Paul isn't actually questioning if the Philippian believers have these things. It's like if I went up to my parents and I said, if you love me, you'll feed me lunch today. I'm not actually questioning their, if they have love for me. I'm assuming their love based off of the reality that they will actually feed me lunch today. And it's the same thing here. Paul is assuming, he's encouraging the Philippian believers and us that we have these qualities if we have received Christ. And it's also worth mentioning that Paul isn't assuming everyone here hearing this letter and everyone today is a believer and has these qualities about themselves. He's refreshing believers of what's true of them if they've received salvation. And so just to be clear, like if you're not a believer here or outside or in the other room, if you're, if you're not a believer, like these, these things are not true of you. If you have not repented and trusted in Christ to save your sins, these things are not true of you, but they can be. Because Paul is going to point us to someone at the end of this passage Jesus Christ, who the Bible says took on those sins on himself. He took God's wrath on himself for your sins so that if you place your faith and trust in him, you can have eternal life. And so just know these may not be true of you, but they, they can be true of you. And so if you want to talk more about having that relationship with Jesus, like I'd love to talk to you or another believer around here about how you can make that happen. And if you are a believer this morning, like be encouraged. These these things are true of us, and we possess these qualities. And he's encouraging us. He's saying, look, you have encouragement in Christ. You have affection and sympathy, and you have these other qualities. And so because these things are true of us, because we have these things, Paul now reminds us of what our lives should look like as believers at Poplar Spring Baptist Church and around Bun and Zebulun. So let's look at it. Our encouragement, verse, verses 2 through 5. Our second point, our, our, he's shown us our encouragement, so now we see our exhortation. Our second point, our exhortation. Look at verses 2 through 5. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So we want to remember Paul is calling us as a church to be unified. So Paul begins this exhortation or this charge by charging the Philippians and us to complete his joy. Now Paul is not lacking joy in any way. Rather, he's simply saying, add on to my joy by letting me know that you're doing these things, that you're pursuing Christ Add on to my joy by letting me know that you're being of the same mind. You're having the same love. You're being in full accord of one mind. And it's important to understand here that Paul is not saying that we need to like the same music or enjoy the same food or even like all of the songs that we sing Sunday to Sunday. Like Those are all opinions. Those are all preferences. Those are all tastes. Those are all secondary. Paul is calling us to something much, much deeper here. 
And that's unity around and in the gospel, fueled by the Holy Spirit. Our lives as believers should be characterized by the fact that whenever we come to, together, either on Sundays or outside of church, not on Sundays, we can lay aside our preferences and opinions that knowing those things will too pass away one day with this world. And we, we should be unified around the fact that we, none of us, deserved, believers in here, deserved salvation. Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We should be unified around the fact that we have received salvation by grace through faith. You see, we're not really that much different from the Philippian church. Philippi was a a Roman colony. You could think of like a suburb of a major city, so it was like a suburb of Rome. And being citizens of Rome, the Philippians got to share in certain benefits of their citizenship. And we know from Acts that Paul, he got to share in the benefit of, of due process. He got to appeal to Caesar. And there were other benefits such as tax exemptions. And so Paul knew firsthand the temptation to take good things and make them God things, to put them at the level of the gospel. He knew that the Philippian church would be tempted in the face of social unrest and persecution to be unified around their citizenship and its benefits and not the gospel. That's starting to sound familiar. I think this is one of the biggest struggles we're facing as a church right now. We've taken those, those personal preferences and those political opinions and we've elevated them to the importance level of the gospel. The problem isn't that we talk about cultural topics or, or important politics, but if, if the church becomes unified around political positions or personal preferences, then that church will crumble in the face of any trial. Like, I just want to be clear, neither Biden nor Trump is going to save our souls. Like, when we stand before God, we're not going to give an account for our president. We're going to give account for our life. We're going to give an account for our hearts and our motives. And for that reason, Paul says, have the same mind, a mind that treasures and prioritizes the gospel. Have the same love, a love for Christ and for the lost. Be in full accord of one mind. A mind that, at the end of the day, finds its, its worth in Christ, its salvation it's in Christ, its hope in Christ, and its unity in Christ. Because at the end of the day, if things get hard for us, your political position or your personal preferences of music or whatever style, that will not hold this church together. It will not hold believers together. Christ alone will hold this church together. We need to be collectively unified around Christ, around the gospel. And you may wonder, you know, you say, well, Ben, that sounds great, but, but you don't know my situation. It, it, you don't know my circumstance. If you only knew the people that I had to try to be unified with, you wouldn't be saying these things. And I think many of us may, may even feel that way, too. Not towards anybody here, of course, but um, I think we've all, we've all been there, right? Trying to be unified with people that they're really good at sanctifying you. And that's why Paul doesn't just call us to unity in a vacuum. He, Paul calls us to unity through humility. Look at verses 3 through 5. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's, it's important to remember, like we just said, the temptation for the Philippians 
So they're, they're Roman citizens, and so they've got this temptation to be unified around their tax benefits or their, their appeal to due process and these other benefits. But there's also, the Philippians were also seeing some persecution on the horizon, which might have caused some people to start clinging to the physical. It's kind of the temptation when things get hard, grab what you know is there, grab what you know can keep you safe. And they see a possibility for their comforts to be taken away. And most likely, selfish ambition is starting to creep into the church. And so Paul charges them to humility through serving other people because he knows that selfishness is the thing that feeds disunity. Like Satan doesn't need some massive scandal to to create division in the church. All he needs is a few willing servants to serve themselves. The reason we're so divided in the world right now is is not because we actually have real differences of opinion. It's because we're so self-centered. Paul's not asking us to to like the same music or vote for the same person. He's asking us to look away from ourselves. Get your eyes up. The world we are in right now is just screaming, me, me, look at me, I matter the most, I'm the most important, and we are fighting a battle against selfish ambition and conceit like never before. We have to guard ourselves against the subtle yet ever-present temptation to place ourselves before others, to seek our own comfortability at the cost of another brother or sister's comfortability. And on the flip side of that, Paul is not just asking us to be humble and be unified for, for the reason of just serving one another. Like, there's a, there's a greater cause for this. God is jealous for his glory. Look at, or I'll read Matthew 5.16. Listen as I read. In the same way, Matthew 5.16, in the same way, Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. 1 Peter 2.12, be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. This isn't just about how we experience each other inside of the church being unified. It's about how the world experiences us as believers. They see us, how we walk day-to-day lives. And believers serving one another is a way that we get to show the world Christ what he has done through us. Now, I, I pray like this church, I know it is, and I pray this church would just still be a bunch of people not like each other, just coming together and dealing with each other and serving one another to show the world what Christ has done in their own hearts. And it's, it's not easy. I, I had a situation recently where I was treated uh, relatively poorly by some acquaintances at school, and it rubbed me the wrong way. It really did. It rubbed me the wrong way to the point, you know, I'm a thinker, and I, so I'm just, for days, I'm just thinking about this situation, and it's bugging the mess out of me. So I'm at work one day, and I'm thinking about this situation where these, these believers had treated me kind of poorly, and I'm talking to my coworker, and I said, Cody, I just, I just don't understand I just don't understand. Why would, why would they do something like that? Like, I'm struggling to understand why a believer, why a believers would treat me like that. I just, I don't understand it. And he, he paused and almost as his, if he was reflecting on his own life and own story. And he just, he just looked forward and he just said, you know, I said, it's funny. We like to talk about bearing our cross when it's easy, but not when it gets hard. And that's all he needed to say. Right? I was asking him, I was asking him about these self-righteous Christians treating me poorly, and his response was, bear your cross, serve them. 
It wouldn't be, wouldn't being unified be easy if we were just all perfect? Like, wouldn't counting others more significant as ourselves, wouldn't that just be easy if they were all perfect? But we're not. We live in a sin-saturated world where it seems like people are making it as hard as possible to count them as more significant than ourselves. Amen? It isn't easy. I'll be the first to admit that, that I am not inclined to serve others most days. That is not my natural inclination. You can ask my, one of my roommate, old roommates here and one of my friends over here. Not my friend's inclination when I wake up in the morning. But that's the point, right? And look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have you ever heard the saying, God hasn't called you to do something you can't do? Have ever told you that's a liar? Look at 2 Corinthians 12, 19, or listen to 2 Corinthians 12, 19. But he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. 1 Peter 4.11, if anyone serves, they should do so in the strength that God supplies, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory and power forever and ever. Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Like, friend, God has called you to do something in this text that you are not naturally inclined to do, that I am not naturally inclined to do. And you may think, well, that seems unfair. Like, why would, why would God do that? Why would he call me to something that I am not naturally inclined to do? And it's because if Ben serves in the strength that Ben supplies, then Ben gets the glory. But if God supplies the task, and God supplies the spirit, and God supplies the strength, God gets the glory. Like, God's not after our glory. He's not calling us to do something that we can perfect and be good at and show the world, look how good I am at serving other people. He's calling us to do something we're not naturally inclined to so that he gets the glory. This is why we can read texts like this and say yes and amen. James chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. 1 Peter 4, 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeals among you which come among you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Christ-centered unity is not easy. But we're not called to have it easy. We're called to be obedient. And we're called to give God the glory. And just thinking about serving one another, I just wanted to encourage you guys, and wherever you're hearing this, like, y'all do this well. Like, one of the reasons I am so thankful for this church is that you guys could not have picked a more difficult person to love one than myself. I bragged to all my friends at school, like, I don't have friends my age. I have a bunch of adult friends. Right? I, I, I look back on it now, and it, it seemed crazy to me. Like, I was the only person in this church, uh, in this circumstance and position in life. Like, I was the only person. I was like 18, 19, single, like going to Bible college, just an absolute hot mess. And yet, I had friends. I had community. I had a family. 
I could go over to Kirk and Tammy's and watch LSU get walked all over while Matt cried in the corner. I could, <laughs> I could run up to Chris's greenhouse and grab a truck like we had known each other forever. I could go to Malaysia with David Amos and Michael and Matt and never once feel like a fourth wheel in a group of people in totally different stages of life than me. Like, how is that possible? It's because y'all laid down your preferences for me. Like, you, you counted me as more significant than yourselves. And because of that, even though I was a 19-year-old, like, hot mess, completely different stage of life, I could walk into this church week after week and be totally unified with people completely different than me. I just praise God that y'all do this so well. just wanted to encourage you. And so we, we saw in verse 5 that we're able to do this in Christ. Paul makes that clarification because he knows we'd be tempted to try and serve on our own strength and do this on our own and get discouraged when we couldn't do it. And so that... That's why he gives us our last point, our example. He shows us and gives us the direction, encourages us, and he just says, man, just look at Jesus. So we'll look at our example, verses 5 through 11. Let's read verses 5 through 11 together. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Isn't that just a beautiful section of Scripture? I mean, how gracious is God that while we were still sinners, while we were stuck in this unperfect and broken world, how good is he that he would send us an example to follow? So Paul clarifies, like we said, have this mind, that mind among yourselves, is explaining all what that mind is, those things we've just talked about. And he's answering the question, how do we achieve Christ-centered unity? That's what we're looking at. How do we achieve Christ-centered unity? And how does he answer this question? He points to Christ. So let's just look at what our example looks like. First, Christ was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This just means that Christ, before, his, or before and after his birth, throughout his life, and at the point of his death, and even now, is in the form of God. He was always and has never stopped being the second person of the Trinity. And he has always had and never stopped possessing the supernatural traits that follow suit. And you might wonder, well, why is this important? Why are we harping on this so much? And I'm glad you asked, because in verse 7, some people say that verse 7, where it says that Christ emptied himself, some people are going to argue that, that that means Christ lost his divinity, his godness. And that's just simply not true. If Christ emptied himself of his divine attributes at any point, then he would have ceased to be God, meaning that us as believers would not have salvation. And this is huge and very important for our faith. So again, you might ask, well, Ben, then what did he empty himself of then? It says he emptied himself. Again, another good question. You guys are on a roll this afternoon. In verse 7, Paul is pointing to Christ as the example for achieving that kind of Christ-centered unity that we're talking about. And he wants the Philippians to achieve, and he wants us to achieve. So, So let's just think of it like that, as an example. 
So let's say I'm the CEO of a company, right? I'm the CEO of a company, and we're behind on production. Uh, a few of my employees decided to steal from me, and so, so I had to fire them that morning. So my day isn't going well already. So I, I come down from the warehouse after finishing lunch, and I just come to check on things, and I just see that production is, is really far behind, really far behind. And so I look around at that moment as I'm sitting on the steps, and I just think I can either help them now and get the production rate back up to where it needs to be, or I can say, you know what, no, I'm, I'm the CEO of this company. I don't do stuff like this. I don't do this kind of work anymore. They got themselves into this mess. They can get themselves out of it. And as I sit on the steps, looking out over the warehouse that I have, this company that I've built from the ground up, I have, I have two thoughts. One is, like we said, well, they got themselves into it. They can get themselves out of it. They can pay the consequences. The other thought is, you know, this may mean I get home late and get behind on paperwork, but I love these workers, and I love this company, and I want both of them to do well. And after a few moments of consideration, I take my sport coat off and I loosen my tie and I join my employees in their work so we can get production back up to speed. Okay, so two questions after that story. Was I at any point in that story not the CEO of the company? No, yeah, there we go. We got some participation. Second question. So when God created the earth, when we sinned against him and God looked down and he chose to send Christ to restore creation and Christ was born as a baby and Christ walked on the earth and he died and now he's in heaven, did he ever once stop being God? No, right? So at any point in time, this is the beauty, at any point in time, Christ could have looked down at his position, his status, his divine power, his godness, his perfect existence, and he could have said, you know, I don't need this. I'm, I'm the second person in the Trinity, co-equal with God the Father and God the Spirit. These people are treating me like garbage. I don't, I don't need this. If only they knew who I was. But he didn't. And what did he do? Now pay attention because this is our example. What did he do? He looked at his status. He looked at what was possible. He looked forward to the, the suffering and shame that he would endure throughout his ministry and the fact that at any point he could have pulled the nails out of his hands. He could have unthrown the rocks. He could have taken the thorns out of his head. And he said, I'm going to empty myself of doing what's fair using my divine attributes and using my power and position, and I'm, I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to be obedient unto death so that anyone who places their faith in trust in me and repents of their sin can be saved, and I'm going to lay down my rights for, for people who don't deserve it because I love them. And that's our call. That's Christ-centered unity. We, we don't pursue Christ-centered unity with people around us because they've somehow earned it or deserved it. We don't serve these people around us because it's comfortable or convenient. We do it because Christ did it for us. We do it because we were all once dead at the bottom of the ocean. Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And while we were dead with no way back to life, Christ looked down on our hopeless and helpless estate and he brought us back to life. Not because we deserved it, but because he loved us that much. And we can do we can do that because of verses 9 through 11. Christ finished the work that we could not finish. He finished the work that we couldn't do. And so now he is seated with the Father. He is highly exalted. He's given the name that is above every name. 
And listen, if, if you're here and, and you haven't made that decision to follow Christ, like I just want to offer you two things. And first, I am pleading now, like that'll be the best decision you ever make. Like this, we've, we've heard the gospel, like this is Christ and he offers this to everyone. So if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, like I am pleading with you, do it now, wherever you're outside or in here or where you are listening to this, please, like I'm pleading with you to do, do just that. So the second thing is, we, we, the Bible is clear. If you have not made that decision, verse 10 and 11 are clear. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. On that day, if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says you will spend an eternity separated from Jesus and God in a place called hell. So please, come to him today. If you, if you want to make that decision, I'd love to talk to you about that afterwards. And if you are here and you've made that decision and you're a believer but you've skipped out on some opportunities to be serving some people around you to, to achieve that Christ-centered unity because they haven't earned it or they've wronged you in some way, this is the time to repent. This is the time to show that person Christ. And I just want to make it clear, like, if somebody has wronged you, if somebody has, has done something that they don't deserve your forgiveness or your service of them, the best thing you could do for that person is to show them Christ by doing exactly what they don't deserve. So we've seen our, our encouragement, we've seen our exhortation, and we've seen our example. Christ-centered unity is not found within us, but within Christ and his example. So let's live, let's live that out today, church. Let me pray for us. Um, Father, you're, you're good. I just praise you for your, your faithfulness, God, and... Uh, I pray, Lord, that we would be a church, this would be a church, um, and we would be a people that, that put on display the gospel and Christ-centered unity by our actions, Lord. We would serve people who are not deserving of it because we were not deserving of salvation. I just praise you for your work in that, Lord, and just pray you would convict us, convict our hearts, Lord. Ultimately, just draw our hearts to worship now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Dave is going to come up and...